Hey there, everybody, and welcome to the next episode of the Fat Guy Forum. This is your host, Gormy. Glad to have you all here with us tonight for one of the first times we're going to be talking to someone tonight. I did mention in one of my earlier episodes that the Fat Guy Forum would indeed be a forum. So tonight we have with us Jonathan Shane, a.k.a. The Keto Road, uh, who many of you may know um, as my coach, but he's also someone that I feel like you all need to get to know, hear his story. So we're going to talk tonight. John, how you doing? I'm doing pretty good, buddy. How about you? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Um, so I'm excited to get into the meat of what we're going to talk about tonight. And really, I, I just want to start us off with letting you introduce yourself and tell, start to tell a little bit of your story. Start to dig into it. Sweet, man. Yeah. So uh, hello, everybody. Uh, my name is Jonathan Shane. Um, as you pointed out earlier, the Keto Road is my name for all my social media platforms. Um, so a little bit about me. I grew up um, in a split home. You know, back and forth to my moms and dads, ended up gaining a bunch of weight um, from different factors playing into that. Uh, by the time I was 14, I was 260 pounds, um, got told that I had the health of like an unhealthy 40-year-old, freaked me out, decided to lose the weight, um, lost the weight, developed a um, fat phobia, which led into me developing bulimia, um, struggled with that, wrestled with that um, the rest of my life. Uh, and then, you know, always went back and forth between a profession towards health and fitness and always yo-yo dieting. Um, sometimes I'd gain weight some, and then I, the, you know, the bulimia and stuff would come back and then I would like lose weight, et cetera, et cetera, so on. Uh, and then about two years ago, found the keto diet, fell in love with it. Um, and then decided to compete as a natural bodybuilder on a ketogenic diet, met with Robert Sykes, uh, as some of y'all know, he is Keto Savage. Prepped with him for eight months. Last August, competed, got third place. Changed my life. Changed the trajectory of my life. Uh, talked to Robert afterwards. You know, I just reignited a passion for fitness and health in my life. And got offered a job as a deeper state keto coach. Um, that's where I first ran into Mike as my very first client. And uh, yeah, the rest is history. And here we are. Awesome. Well, that pretty much concludes what we wanted to talk about. So I, I think that's good, man. Yeah, for sure, brother. No, but so so for everyone out there listening, like I, I think most of you who who know John through me know him as my coach and know him as someone who, you know, is a is a fitness educator and a fitness influencer. And um, some may, you know, some people probably see your pics and know that you were involved, like you said, involved with natural bodybuilding as a ketogenic athlete. Uh, but I, I think the, the thing that's more relevant to us to talk about, you know, really to start to get into is like that that first part of your history. Like I, I was thinking about this today, like something I realized that I don't think we've ever really touched on. And I think at 14 years old, you and I might have weighed around the same. Wow. Uh, I did not know. Yeah. That. Yeah. Because I, I, I was heading up into the, the, the north 200s around that age. So I, I think. We, it, we're, we're kind of two examples of what can happen when you hit, you know, the two fifties, the two sixties, uh, when you're first a teenager, I clearly continue to just keep going upwards. You went in a different direction. So, um, I, I, one of the things that I want to, want to kind of start to get into is you talked about, you know, what brought you, you know, you gained, gained weight as a kid. Like, 
where do you really think that came from? Like what, what behaviors started to come into play there and, and really, you know, what, what turned you from, you know, the, the average kid into someone who clearly, you know, was developing a weight problem? You know, okay. So that's such an interesting story. So to be honest, and if my mom listens to this podcast, she's going to hate me. <laughs> but so I was actually a really skinny kid until first grade. And first grade is when I started to get the chunky cheeks and, and, and all that. And I think what it was, was, so my mom, like, used to smoke, and so, so did my dad, and I hated cigarettes. Like, I hated cigarettes. I don't know what caused it, but um, I just hated them. And my mom, I, you know, I finally, she finally decided to quit, and when she would quit, she would, like, when she got, when she had to deal with something emotional, she would eat, you know, and she loved, like, bluebell, pints of bluebell ice cream and stuff. And sure. things like that. And so I lived a lot with her more than with my dad, which, you know, he's dealt with it with alcohol. So like that wasn't any better. Um, so it's not like one was worse than the other or, or bad or whatever. Um, but uh, so for me, I picked, I think I picked up on the habit at an early age of like, hey, if I want, if I have something emotional happen, the best way to cope with that is just to eat my feelings. And so I started mm. doing that at a very, very young age. Uh, and so, you know, by the time I was 14, I was huge. And it's because I ate my feelings. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> well, wh when do you think was the first time you, like, what would you, do you remember the first moment you realized, like, I'm fat? Like, not just, you know, I'm, I'm the chubby kid, but, like, was there a moment you had, like, a recognition of whether it was people calling you fat or, like, did any of that happen to you? Like, did you, that's something I don't think you and I have ever really talked about, like, if, if anyone ever came at you because of your weight or anything along those lines? Man, that is a hard question. To be honest, no, I, I, I don't think I got picked on like as a chubby kid. I, mm. So when I was a kid, I was definitely like, I liked attention and it, it goes back to my parents being split and stuff and me wanting like attention, whether it was positive or negative. And so I was always the class clown, but like the annoying class clown, not, like not a mm -hmm. kid. I was the kid that like, would go like to the point where it was funny. And then it was like, okay, this kid's like, this kid's really freaking annoying. Um, mm. And um, so like, that was just a huge part of my life was like getting attention and things like that, whether it was negative or not. And so I think I put myself out there a lot, but it's funny that you asked that because I honestly don't think I really recognized it from my memories until the day I got on the scale at the doctor and said 259, I went and sat inside of her, the hospital room and she broke the news about my blood and you know, how unhealthy I was because before that I can remember very distinct memories of like me asking people, Hey, how much do you think I weigh? Like I remember this in seventh grade one time I walked up to this chick I liked and I was like, how much do you think I weigh? And she was like 180 and I was like, I weigh 220. And I said it with pride, man. Like I was happy that I weighed more than I looked because that meant I was mm. big and muscular and, um, or whatever. So I don't really know if I recognized that I was fat or maybe I did. And I was using other people's wrong guesstimations to justify my issues. So I like, sure it's no, go ahead. Go ahead. I don't want to cut you off. And I was going to say, but yeah, so I think that's what it was like. I don't think I like, recognized what it was until there was no one there to say, Hey, you look less than you weigh. There was no one there to justify my, my issue. The doctor was, you're dying, you know? And so like, 
I think that's when it like it actually like hit me. Right. So it sounds like you really didn't have like I, I know I, I I've talked to some other people about like growing up as like a bigger kid and their issues. You know, they deal with the teasing and and all of those sorts of the shame issues. And it sounds like that didn't come into play for you until that moment in the doctor's office. Correct. Yeah, because I got picked on when I was a kid, but it was more because I was just like an overbearing, annoying person that just wanted right. your attention regardless. There was really no like, like, like directing directed towards like how big I was. Sure. And I, I think it's interesting, too, because I don't know, like, were you were there other big kids in your class or were you the biggest kid? So in terms of weight, I think when I was in high school or when I was in middle school, going in high school, because it's not 13, 14, I think there was like two other kids that were my size, uh, mm. but no other. So, you know, this is a school of like, you know, 15, 2000 kids. And there's like two or three that are maybe as big as me. Interesting. Yeah, because I, I, I think that I know for me, when I was especially around that age, I think there were two of us and we were both targets. So I, I, I don't know if it's. Because I'm obviously a little bit older than you, uh, as we've you and I have talked about before. Um, so I wonder if there's a time period piece in terms of like whether kids get more into that kind of type of teasing then, or you know they picked other things for you. This you know obviously they they picked yeah. some other stuff. Yeah, and I think also like I played football, and so like in football mm-hmm. when you were a lineman, you were supposed to be big. It was cool that you right. were this big nasty dude. And so I think that a lot of times, you know, we, we like submit, we, we like submit ourselves and submerge ourselves into certain niches and groups that Mm -hmm. justify and enable our, our habits. And so being that big guy was easy. And because I was a football player and we were doing really good in football, no one was going to tell me I should lose weight. I needed to be big. I was a big lineman, you know? And so like, it was, I think that plays a lot into it too. Like the, the things that I, I did and the things I was, the things I were, I was good at and so on. Right. So, so at 14, you go to the doctor's office, you're 259 on the doctor's scale. And the doctor says, you're not doing good. You know, clearly there were other health issues coming into play. What happened for you then? So that's funny. So, and I know we haven't talked about this and I, I always like, I would love to hear like where you're, you're like, you kind of changed on this or like, like what you did when you figure it out, when you realized you were heavy or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. But for me, like that right then, I don't know why to this day, but it scared the heck out of me. Like I went home, I kid you not, I went home that day and on the way home, my mom bought me a protein powder and some skim milk because I was like, no more fat. Right. Right. Uh, right. I went home and I ran two miles. I, I went to the park. I ran two miles and I like, I remember like falling on my face, throwing up because I'd never ran two miles in my life. Uh, and I ran two That's... miles, threw up, ran back to the house. And I was so like hypoglycemic mm. from that run that like I was shaking. And I remember very specifically this memory of doing that, going home, making a protein shake. It had vanilla protein powder, banana spinach and skim milk. And I remember cutting my hand, trying to slice the banana because my hands were shaking so bad. Mm. I very vividly remember that memory. <laughs> wild, wild. That, yeah, I mean, I can only imagine after not running and then running, you know, pushing yourself that hard. That's wild, man. And it, it's funny because I think for me, 
the realization obviously I th- I think came earlier, came came much earlier. Um, well, not much earlier, probably about four years before that age wise for me, probably when I was ten, and that was when I had my fir- my family's first intervention about my weight. And, um, I, I, I can't remember if I've told the story yet so far on the podcast, but I was 10 years old and my aunt was like the Weight Watchers queen. Like she was the diet queen in the family. And so my mom got her involved and like got her into this, like, um, basically like, oh, like an intervention, like you'd see on a TV show. And she, she said, we're going to do this together. We're going to work on this together. They had put together this plan. Basically, at that age, you couldn't go to Weight Watchers if you're 10 years old because they didn't have liability insurance to cover putting a kid on a diet. So it, we were just going to do it all from home. And my aunt took me into the bathroom to weigh me and promised that it would just be between us and that no one else would know. And it would just be between us. And so, like, I, I didn't want to get on the scale. I had, I had every so often gotten on the scale myself, but not really paid that much attention to it. And I got on the scale and I was over 200 pounds. And she freaked out. I don't think she was expecting that. And she basically ran out into this room full of family where like my sister and my cousins and uncles and like my entire family was and said, Oh my God, he's 200 pounds. And I just remember her like yelling it to everyone and it becoming like this big thing. Like they all knew, they all knew what was going on. And that was the moment that I knew immediately that I needed to be ashamed of of my weight. Um, So, it, it it built from there for me and became something that was more about like hiding. Yeah. You know, I think that's something you and I have talked about before too, like the, the sneak eating and, and kind of getting into those patterns as a kid. Oh yeah, for sure. And, and it's interesting. Cause like, even though my weight loss or my weight loss journey started at 14, like the, the, the things I did prior to that were, were definitely, I mean, you and me, I mean, we probably have a lot of stories that are very aligned in that respect. Well, let, that's why we're talking on the podcast, John, if you want to tell any of those stories. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I, I was, I was terrible. Like I remember, and it was hard. Cause like my mom loved me and she wanted to be my best friend. And so there was a lot of enabling that would happen. Like I remember every time I got my blood drawn from my annual physical, I, I got exactly two hot and spicies and two large fries and a milkshake from McDonald's. And I would just, <laughs> I would down that thing, you know, and I'm 12 mm. years old and I would just, right. Um, and so I ate like that a lot. And then I don't, man, it's so weird. I don't know what like triggered these things. Like I remember, so two things I remember doing very vividly is one thing I would do is I would offer I almost every night, dude, I would offer to take everybody's plates to the kitchen and I would eat their scraps when I got behind mm. the wall when no one was looking. Uh, I don't know why, but I would do it. And I remember one time we had chicken and dumplings and my stepdad heard me slurping his bowl and was like, I put a loogie in that. So good job. Eh. And like, it messed me up, you know, in my head, but it didn't stop me. From oh my God. Yeah. It scared, it grossed me out, but it didn't stop me. Like I, I did it again and again. Um, and I would do that all the time. And then the other thing I would do is I would sneak eat um, these chips. Like my mom would buy these chips from the dollar store and I would take the whole bag. And these are big family size bags. I'd open it up mm-hmm. and I would pour a bag of shredded cheese and like half a bottle of hot sauce in there. I'd roll it up and I'd shake it. And then I'd stuff it in my bed. 
And whenever I was like having a bad night or I had a bad day at school or I was stressed out or frustrated, I would, or bored, whatever kind of emotion was going on, you know, I would just like pull the bag out and just like eat my feelings, you know? And mm. what I find fascinating though, is even though my weight loss journey started at 14, like my eating disorder didn't really stop. Like the only thing that right. changed was the kind of food I was eating. Like sure. I was eating healthy, but I would eat like two butter bowls of Captain Crunch a day, an entire bag of spinach, a pound of chicken, a, bo- a half a bottle of fat-free ranch. I just did so like low caloric things that I could enable my habits, but still get to my goal. Right. Which, you know, so yeah. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, obviously, I mean, you were young, so, you know, what, how, how do you, how are you supposed to know, you know, whether changing that behavior completely is good or bad. You just know that you're, you're getting towards those goals. And you're, you're filling that space in though. I think the, you know, the, those eating pat- patterns we develop as kids stay with us forever. Like I, I think it's, it can be one of the hardest things to break. I know for me, it was a challenge because I developed such a shame over my size and my eating when I was a young, young, young kid. So that when I was able to do it again, it almost became like I had to sneak eat. Like I, I had to make sure that I wasn't eating around other people. Like I became a very private eater mm-hmm. uh, for dec for decades, for decades. Like, and even when I got a car, the idea of being able to drive around and eat in my car was like heaven to me because there was no way for anyone else to be around if I was eating when I was driving around. So it's, it's, it's wild how that can just influence our behavior going forward. And then for you to think about, you know, even though you were scared, scared to death almost by that doctor's information, you know, you, you, you shifted this, the food, but not the behavior with the food. Yeah. I, I don't think I correlated it. I think I just correlated the type of food, not the habits that were going on. And obviously I think that's because my doctor was ignorant to the way I was eating. She just knew right. kinds of food. She didn't realize like no one really knew about the other stuff. Um, of course. And so, yeah, no, I, I agree with that. And so then you lost weight, right? You know, from, from 14, you did, you did lose weight. How did that go for you? What, what was that like? Yeah. So I did lose the weight. I think it took me a year to lose. I went from 260, 259 to be exact down to like, uh, 190 and, and about a year. It took me about a year. I lost about 70 pounds. Mm-hmm. And then, and then that's when I started to develop. That's when my eating disorders got like, I don't want to say that before wasn't healthy eating, like was healthy eating, but like, that's when I really started to develop like the harsh eating disorder. That's when the bulimia started to develop and such. And then once the bulimia really got aggressive, I got all the way down to 175. So that would have been like, um, so it had been about, uh, I started losing weight second semester of freshman year and I was 175, um, at the first semester of my junior year. And when you talk about the eating disorder developing, you know, I'd like to dive into that a little bit and just, was there, was it the continued pressure to lose weight? Was it just a behavior that developed and you're not really sure where it came from? Or was there something you think that triggered, triggered that behavior? Oh yeah. Yeah. No, I don't mind talking about that. Yeah. So, um, basically I already, I know what triggered it. What triggered it was that people started being, when I lost weight and leaned up and started to look decent 
and football was going well and I got a starting, you know, I started like moving on up in football and I started like, I got my first official girlfriend and blah, blah, blah. I associated all of that with, um, my, me being less weight, like me being skinnier Mm -hmm. is what I associated with everybody being nice to me and my life working out. And so the idea of gaining weight back became a phobia to me. Like I said, Mm. a severe body dysmorphic phobia. Um, and so, but at that point I had been dieting for so long that my, my hunger hormones and all the things I understand now were so jacked up. And right. so I started having a hard time controlling my diet. And so mm. I found myself in this tense place of like trying to like stay tiny or what I considered tinier than I was. And then trying to like, you know, feed myself. And mm-hmm. I remember like overeating a bad food one day and just thinking, how do I get this out of me? And my stomach felt a little queasy. So I was like, I should just throw it up. And so I threw it up and it was like, people don't talk about this a lot when it comes to bulimia, but like, right. it's, it's, it almost for the bulimic, it's almost, it, it is, it's an, it's an enjoyable action. Like I, threw oh, up yeah. and, it, and it just, it just amazed me. All I had, to, I could eat whatever I wanted and I could just throw it back up and I could feel that that I could go from feeling really full to really light and empty in an instant. And I got to eat what I wanted and I got to maintain my weight. And it just became like this magical button in my life. Um, I, I, so, I think that, be- huh. no, go ahead, go ahead. No, no, you go. <laughs> no, I was going to say, I, I think that makes a lot of sense from the people that I've spoken to and the research I've done into eating disorders where, there's a you euf- the purging brings a euphoria an endorphin rush almost that's physical and mental and and like it's like satisfying something deeply so like you get this great almost like a pleasure hit from it so i, I think that makes a lot of sense like why do you keep doing a behavior like that obviously there's something reinforcing it for you so i think that makes a lot of sense yeah it, and it escalated quickly because of that like when it first happened it was only when I had a really bad cheat meal. Like if I, like if I had like a, a burger, I didn't worry about it. But like if I overate, like if I ate a whole pizza, I would go throw it up, you know? And so it was happening mm-hmm. like once, a, once, once every couple of weeks or something. But then like, as I did it more, I wanted to do it more. And then it was, you know, then it went to like once a week and then it went to every time I ate dinner. And then it was every time I ate lunch. And I never like threw up breakfast for some reason. Like I just loved my Captain Crunch, but mm. like <laughs> lunch and dinner, it got to a point where I was throwing up almost all my lunches and all my dinners. I was throwing up at school. I was throwing up at home and it literally became about just throwing up, Like just the act of like eating and purging was just like this amazing feeling. Like, I would throw up in the shower. I would throw up in bags and throw them outside. I'd throw up under rocks in my backyard. Like that's how my parents found out. Um, and so like, I would find anywhere to just like get my fix, like get my hit, if you will. Oh, for sure. And, and you, you started talking about your parents found out because of the rocks in your backyard. That was going to be my next question. So when, when did this come to a head for you in terms of people finding out or you realizing the behavior needed to change? Like what was the moment? So my, that, that's a great question. Like, so my parents found out, it's, like a, it's more of like a twofold answer. So the first one was my parents found out, um, uh, that just made it embarrassing for me. I still struggled with sure. it, 
but I didn't do it as often. So I threw up behind the rocks in my backyard, right? And what happened was my dogs found the throw up and started eating it. Uh, and my mom followed them one day and saw them eating it. And then he was there. She was like, "What? What is this?" And she realized it was throw up. And so then after that, it got really awkward because like if I was in the bathroom too long after dinner, they would come up to me and smell my breath and make sure it didn't smell like vomit and all kinds of stuff. And so it was just, it was really, really an uncomfortable time for me, but it was good that they did it because it didn't, it didn't stop my bulimia. I mean, I was still throwing it. I just got really sneaky about it, mm -hmm. um, but it, it did happen less frequently. So that was the first stage. And then the second stage was the March of the following year. So this is the, the end of, this is the beginning of my freshman or the beginning of my junior year of high school. So this is 2011. So the, um, fall of 2012, March, um, I got saved. I found Christianity and, um, that changed my view on things completely because at that point, you know, as a Christian, I realized, Hey, your body's a temple. And it should be mm -hmm. taken care of. And you putting stomach acid up your esophagus is not okay. You know, you not being able to drink soda because you have so much like scar tissue from the hydrochloric acid from your stomach, that's not okay. Like you throwing up so much that you start, you've been throwing up blood for the past couple months. That's like, that's not okay. Uh, and so that's really what like uh, made the bulb light in my head, if you will. Wow. That's powerful. I mean, in terms of like having that moment of discovery, especially having connected to something that, you know, runs so deep through you. I know now we're, what are we, seven years after this, this happens. Um, and your faith is a big, obviously a big part of your life. And to know that that was something that, you know, was, was saving you on so many levels. I think that's, that's, that's really powerful, man. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I always tell people, I'm like my faith, my faith get granted me salvation, but it saved me in so many ways after the fact. That's, that, that's fantastic. Like, I really think it is. Um, I think it, it goes, it plays into that bigger picture part of like, you, you know, this journey being about more than just what is on your plate, you know, more about yourself as a whole being. So I, I think it's great to think about that. But like I said, we are, you know, we're, so, so you had that moment happen that was 2012. Mm -hmm. And, and where did your, where did your fitness journey go from there? Yeah. So it's funny, even though that was like, that was like the great moment for me. That was like the, the light bulb moment. I still struggle mm -hmm. with it. I, in fact, I right. still struggle with it. Uh, and so I just kind of like, I, I struggled with that for a while. And when I first became a Christian, you know, my focus like really got taken off of fitness, like. I stayed healthy because I was in football and working out, but like I got really into like my working on my spiritual self and trying to figure out what this new life looked like and such. Uh, and then when I graduated high school, so, so nothing really changed by the end of my uh, junior year and the rest of my senior year, nothing crazy happened. I mean, I, uh, you know, football, my last year of football, I was emotional. I got accepted into HBU, which is like a big private um, college. And before, uh, I became a Christian. I had like terrible grades and like afterwards I decided like I needed to like represent, you know, this God I believed in well. And so like I started getting straight A's and everything. Um, and so that was a cool story was I went from like probably not going to be able to get into a community college to getting accepted mm. into a private, you know, institution. 
So that wow. spoke a lot. Yeah, so that was a big moment. But other than that, like in terms of like fitness and stuff, nothing really changed. Um, and then after I graduated high school, I wanted to go to college for kinesiology. I played a, a year of uh, college football and hurt my shoulder really bad. And then after I hurt my shoulder really bad is when I stopped. I actually took a step back from the gym and I ended up gaining some like some like uh, dad bod weight, if you will. Um, was really struggling at that point in my life. I started partying again. Um, and then the bulimia came back because mm. that was like, that was like my, um, it's funny. It doesn't matter like how far away you get away from it. If you, if you put yourself in a position to where you have nothing else to turn towards, your old habits will come back to you. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's so imperative that us as people, you know, you and me and everybody else listening that we always have something to look towards and to strive towards because the minute we make it to where we have nothing to look forward to, our old habits that we have gotten comfortable in, that we use to give us some sort of um, consistency and some sort of stability will come back in our lives and it will grab us and try to choke us out. And so that's what happened to me at that point. And then I got my crap together, married my wife, um, at that point, my bulimia wasn't really a thing. Like it would, it, I still fought with it and it would, it would, it would come back and, you know, every couple of months I'd have like an episode and, um, and then I started like a yo-yo dieting. I got a job at LA fitness and I started co uh, being a personal trainer director there, but they treated their employees terribly. So I ended mm -hmm. up giving that, I ended up stepping away from that and I ended up getting a job in pest control. Um, and I, and I did really, really good at that. Um, right. But, you know, health was always like on my forefront. So like, I was always like yo-yo dieting and like trying to be, you know, have my little bulk seasons and cutting seasons and et cetera. And then I found keto. And then, you know, like I said, I prepped with Robert and then boom. <laughs> right. That takes us kind of up to where you are now. That's awesome, man. Yeah. So I mean, one, uh, I wanted to, to talk to you today because I think that, uh, one, I think your story is, is fascinating. I, I think people might catch your, your, your face to face Fridays or your transformation pictures every so often, but I don't think people, people know the journey that you've been through. I think sometimes people look at a coach and the condition they're in right at that moment and they don't really realize that, you know, you all can have a story as well. Um, as much as that person who's looking to make a, a journey themselves. You know, so I, I think that's that's really interesting to dive into. And I know that that also drives a little bit of what else I wanted to talk to you about, because like one, I, I think you you hit on something really key there when you said, you know, those habits come back, you know, especially we let our guard down or we, we don't plan. And, you know, from working with me and from hearing my story that I've had that happen spectacularly several times, several times in my <laughs> life. You know, most recently, 2013 was 210 pounds. In May and in October, I was 480 pounds. Like I, I obviously had not dealt with anything that would keep those habits away. Uh, I, I, I let them come back full force. And I, I think that's important for people to think about like what comes next and how do you approach yourself? And a big part of that, I think, is thinking about, you know, what the changes that happen to our bodies and how we approach our bodies. And, and I, I think too often men don't think about those issues. Like I think we think about, weight loss and fitness as something that has like an end goal and don't think about the road that gets us there and don't think about the road that we follow after. 
It's like you hit the goal and you're done. And we know from personal experience for both of us that that's not exactly how it works. That's not really a way that that's great. So I wanted to to talk with you tonight about something that you've been pretty active about talking about on social media the past couple of weeks. And and that's talking about male body image and, and how body dysmorphia specifically. And I think a lot of this is going to be general to everyone listening. So I know I've got a lot of, a lot of women out there listening to the Fat Guy Forum, but I do want us to talk about how we think these issues intersect with men specifically. Like when you get into like where, you know, how body dysmorphia isn't necessarily something you always think about in health class when they talk about it, they don't always bring up a guy They you know, they'll, they'll sometimes throw, bring the guy up as a throwaway, but how do you like, what, just maybe throw it, throw it over to you to say, like, what are your thoughts on the, the prevalence of, of body dysmorphia within, you know, the, the fitness community, within the weight loss community, and even just in, you know, in, in, in men in general? Yeah, man. It's, it's funny because I've been kind of loud about this as of late, but it's actually something that mm-hmm. I've been very um, tame talking about like my body dysmorphia my bulimia i've brought it up in a couple podcasts here and there but here lately i've just really been going at it full force um and that's just because i've realized that there is not a voice for men that struggle with these things and if i can i want to be that voice and and what do i mean by that so like kina Lauren had a talk on the low carb cruise and she talked about the statistics of men and women that struggle with actual body dysmorphia um, and men, there's more, there's a higher percentage of men that struggle with it than women. And, but we talk about it a lot, a lot less. And I think that's the issue. It's not that like men with body dysmorphia have it worse than women. I think that because of the whole, the, the male stigma and facade of being tough and not emotional, that there's not a vulnerability there that needs to be there for men to be able to handle their issues. And mm. You know what I mean? And so it's like... Definitely, definitely. Yeah, and so it's like trying to make that a reality, like telling other men that like, hey, like, you know, I struggle with this. I I have very particular parts of my body that you should hear the way I talk to myself. Like, like it is not nice. Uh, under like I, I'd probably make somebody cry if I told them the exact things I say to myself at times when I'm not like, when I'm not like, um, my barriers aren't up and I haven't like, done my steps to like, you know, give myself that self-care and self-gratification and, and such. Um, and so, I mean, it's, it's a real thing for men. And the more you try to hide it and sweep it under the rug, the more nasty it gets. It's like, it's almost like if you don't like deal with the boogeyman, he just gets bigger, <laughs> you know? For sure. Yeah. And so... And, and- and something I think could be good because I realized something we haven't really done. Like we've started, I think, throwing around words that we're used to using when we're talking with each other. But there might be someone out there listening who's dealing with these issues who doesn't have the language. So can, can you give me how you define body dysmorphia? Yeah. So the way I define body dysmorphia is when you think about your body in a very, very negative way, when it doesn't even actually exist. Like, so body dysmorphia would be where, like, let's say that you've lost a bunch of weight, right? And you have some loose skin, but like in your eyes, it's like, you know, it's like the night cape from Batman episodes, you know, and like you destroy your, you destroy yourself over it. 
And it's really not as bad as you in your head visualize it as. Like, um, to give you an example, for me, right? Like, one of my big body dysmorphic areas, probably the number one is my arms. Like, I am very mean to my arms. I think that they're, Mm -hmm. I, I think they're puny. I think they're twigs. I think that they suck and they don't grow and they're stubborn and they hate me and they shouldn't even be a part of my body. Like I hate my mm. arms. Um, and that's just not true. My arms are strong as hell. I can lift some heavy weight with my arms. You know, they're tough. They deal with a lot of things. They, they picked me up when I was fat, when I was skinny, when I was bulimic, mm-hmm. when I, when, you know, it doesn't matter what time of my life. Like they, they picked me up more times than I can probably count. Like they're strong, you know, but, in times of weakness or before I started dealing with it, they were always something I always perceived them as something they weren't. Mm. That makes a lot of sense. I, I, I think it's, and, and I, I find it interesting that how much this can also come to the surface for people when we're, when we're losing weight and when we're changing mm-hmm. our bodies from ways we want them to be different. Like I, like it's one of the, one of the things that I I can tend to be known for on Instagram is having some very wild before pictures, like having some some crazy um, before shots. Because I had no shame when I was four hundred eighty pounds, when I was five hundred forty pounds. Like I I took pictures left and right, and I didn't feel that shame about like my body because I think I went through such intense shame as a kid that I rebelled against that, and I thought, well, you don't like my body, well, you're going to see more of it, and. I think as I've lost weight is when I've, I've started to develop more of that criticism and, and more judging of how my body looks in different things. Like, like my struggles that we've talked about with wearing clothes that fit. Um, you know, it's just recently that I've started getting rid of all the four X, five X and three X clothes that I was wearing, which were the halfway point of my journey because I, I'm not used to what my body looks like in, these quote unquote average size clothes. So dealing with that, it just builds this kind of like reinforced cycle and you have to sometimes be able to try to see yourself in other ways. And like, I think like that framing that you gave to your arms, like you you know that they're strong, but you also know that you're still going to have issues. You're still going to have those moments where you look at your arms and you're not happy. So how do we get to that place? Like what are some ideas for, for people who are dealing with these issues, whether they're losing weight, they're not losing weight, they're on a journey or they're not. Like, how do they start to identify that they're, they have these misperceptions about their bodies? Mm, that's a, man, that's a good question. I would say, to be honest with you, like, and I'm not mm-hmm. saying that if you say something negatively about yourself, you're, you, you're blind dysmorphia. Because then that would, that, you know, everybody, right. could, everybody says something negative about their body at some point in their lives. And um, right. so that would diagnose everybody with it. And that's just not the case. But I will say that if you are overly negative towards yourself, mm-hmm. like if you if you beat yourself down as a human because of physical attributes that you perceive, uh, then you might you might have an issue and you need to address that. So like if you're look if every time you look at a photo of you, you like or if you go to take a photo, you hide a particular part of your body because of the way you perceive it, like that's that's an issue that's that's negatively viewing your body in a negative light and it's not healthy and so that's the way i would that's the way i would um identify that issue is if like you have a particular body part or you know um yeah a particular body part or something on you that 
you try to hide or that you just pick at and beat yourself down over, that's not healthy. That's not healthy body image in any light. Um, and so when it comes to addressing it and dealing with it, you know, self-care is a big thing. And taking the moment to compliment your body, not just because of what it's done for you, but because where it's come from. Uh, mm -hmm. And not just doing that when you want to. Doing it even if you don't want to. Like One thing I'm big on with me is the minute I get a negative thought about my body and my head, I'll immediately counter it with a compliment. Like if mm -hmm. I go, man, if I go, man, my arms are small today. I'll go, yeah, but I just deadlifted 400 pounds. You know, like, you know, it's just like reinforcing the things that my body is capable of. You know, like if you are losing weight and you have like an issue with your waist and you think negatively about yourself one, you know, one morning you're just like, I hate my body. You know, think about, think about how strong your body is. Like, you know, if you've lost a hundred pounds, man, you used to carry that hundred pounds for you every day. Like mm -hmm. your body is strong and it is capable of a lot of things and you should lift it up for that and praise it for that. Like it's, it's carried you through the first part of that, this journey that you're in and it's going to finish you carrying you all the way to the end of it. And that's something that it should be praised for, not, not beat down over. Um, and so it's being able to like challenge yourself to even when you don't want to, you know, like shifting your view on some of the issues that you struggle with. I think that makes a lot of sense. I, I, I think it does. And I, I think one thing that you hit on that I think is really important is there's a difference between just having a bad day in terms of how you look at yourself and having it become something that's a pattern of behavior that's detrimentally mm -hmm. affecting you. And that's when you start to affect your behavior and where you choose to go and how you choose to display yourself and all of those things. And it starts to create, you know, those shame cycles. And, you know, are you avoiding social interaction because you don't want people to see your arms or your legs? And I know for me specifically, it's been my legs for years. Uh, my, when I, when I was at my heavier weights, my legs would swell. I would get red sores on them. My legs were, were disfigured. And so now having lost a ton of weight, I still have that same, had those same feelings about my legs. Like I still, I just see the imperfections and I don't, I, I, I wouldn't think about what my legs have been through. I, I wouldn't think about the fact that my legs still used to get me up and get me to work when I was 540 pounds, that my legs would still get me up and down the stairs when I was 480 pounds, that my legs would allow me to still, you know, maybe I wasn't getting far, but they were still there for me. And I think just finally saying one day I have to, I have to stop wearing, like I used to wear the same very, very long, very, very large. I called them shorts, but I don't know how they were considered. They were sold as shorts, but they literally rested on the ground. Um, they were basically like beach pants and I would wear those all summer long because they would cover my legs, but allow enough kind of air in. So I wouldn't die from heat exhaustion. And I'm trying now to just say, okay, these are my legs. If people want to stare at them and, and you and I, we, we, we've talked about when we were in Austin together and got to work out at the gym, you know, I was wearing shorts that were above the knee that day. And, you know, my legs are on full display. And there was someone who every time I walked by kept kind of bending his head down and looking. And I noticed obviously that that was happening. And I knew in that moment I had a choice to 
kind of give in to the insecurity then and, and end what we were doing and say, I you know, make up an excuse and say, I want to leave or just say, yeah, these are my legs. This is what you're going to see. You don't like it. It's not really has anything to do with me at all. And I'm excited to see what my legs are going to do today in the gym. And I, I think that's a hard mental shift sometimes for people to make. Like, finding support to do that, I think, is really important. Oh, wholeheartedly. Like, having a community around you to love you and lift you up and support you is so powerful. Um, I totally agree with that. And it's funny that you bring up the legs. So, like, going back to, like, my, my issues, like, with my arms, right? Like, so something I struggle with is if I put on a shirt and there's a gap of my arm sleeve, mm-hmm. like, if it's not tight around my arms... I will not wear it. Like I will go like put it back in the closet and um, you know, like, so I've gotten to the point now where if that happens and I go to take it off, I'll stop. I'll look, Mm -hmm. I'll go, John, you look good, bro. You look good. You're fine. Like, like you like this shirt, wear it. Like, it's okay. Like, it's okay that like, you know, these things aren't like cutting off the circulation to your biceps. Like, Mm -hmm. you have a good body you look good your hair looks nice you're going on a date with your wife don't make it about you embrace who you are and enjoy the moment and be in the moment you know and i feel like our insecurities so often take us away from the moment for sure for sure and so being able to just like know who we are be confident who we are and challenge ourselves to try and look at us in a positive light and and look at those positive attributes and those pos- and those uh, those positive you know actions that our body has undertaken for us when we were unhealthy and overweight and etc. And being able to just be in the moment instead um, is so is so powerful. I definitely think you're right. And one of the things I think, and this is another reason why it's good to have you as a captive audience. There's a lot of different ways to reach out to get support, and I think men in general. You know, one, tend to, can shy away from group support sometimes because, you know, sharing your emotions and everything in a large group can be very challenging for people as individuals, men or women. But men in general don't necessarily see that as an avenue. So sometimes I think there can be that challenge there. So sometimes one-to-one support could be a great thing, like finding a coach, finding someone who can help you work with these issues. And so I, I think obviously if someone has debilitating issues around body dysmorphia and body image, there's counselors and there's people to reach out, you know, who are professional to deal with it from that angle. But I think if you're looking to get into a relationship with someone to build a supportive relationship about your fitness journey, whether, you know, your weight loss journey specifically, a coach is a great tool. And that's why I feel like I'm lucky to have my coach on the line right now. (laughs) So maybe we can, we can jump into talking a little bit about, I have some questions for you about coaching. I'd like to talk about that. Aren't, be trying to sneak in an extra coaching call at all and aren't, and aren't going to be me at all. And I, and I promise I'm not fishing for you to give compliments about me being your first client or your best client or anything along those lines. Um, if you want to say that I am your, I was your fattest male client ever. That's the way oh you can describe God. me. That's also is what you can do that. Um, but I, I, I do want to, because I, I get questions a lot from people that are like, what's it like to work with a coach? What does your coach even do? What does that even mean? And I don't want us to dive, we don't have to dive into the exact, you know, kind of coaching process and all of those things. You have what you do with people. But I would like to, one, just ask you the question, you know, 
what is what is it like to be that person for people? What is it like to be person of the person who someone comes to you and says, "I want to lose a hundred pounds and I need someone to help me do it." What is that like for you? Oh man, it's the. Um, I'm probably gonna I'm probably gonna zone out right now, but it is probably the most rewarding, special feeling. Like I, I love what I do, and if I had to do it for free, I would. Like if I if I had to live, work another job and not get paid to do it, I would. And I would, I would still love it every day. It's just, it, it, it's amazing to me, you know, and it's something that infuriates me about the fitness industry is that so many coaches aren't like that. You know, you pay them, you pay them 500 bucks a month and they'll send you a weekly email on a PDF that they sent to, you know, Jose and Samantha too, you know, and you just kind of like follow the paper and you ask them a question and they'll email you once a week and be done. Or you'll pay 20 bucks a month and you'll be in a Facebook group, but you'll never hear from the person, you know, or whatever. And, you know, that just irritates me because, like, I have so much passion for what I do. You know, I, I tell all my clients when we get on our first client call, I say, listen, because they ask, Why, what's this first call for? And I'm like, because I want to get to know you and I want you to get to know me. So we're going to talk about our kids. We're going to talk about work. We're going to talk about life because I want to know you. I want to know your struggles. I want to know how I can help you. Not just, I don't want to just help you lose weight. It's so, it's so easy to find somebody that can give you macros. Like I want to, I want to help watch you grow and mature mentally. I want to educate you. I want to see you, you know, develop a very strong, healthy relationship with food, like, like all those things. Um, and so for me, it is like the most rewarding thing to, get with somebody that has a weird relationship with food that doesn't really know what they're doing and wants to lose weight and not only help them lose weight, but watch the person they become. Like I'm going to use you right now as an example, only because you're my longest standing client. And so I've watched you develop more than everybody else, but fine. fine. (laughs) Like I love how much weight you've lost. I think you freaking kill it and you never cheat. And you're the most like amazing, like, you just kill it. Like, like I want, I wish everybody just number tracked macro for macro and killed it. Like you did. I really do. But, but that does not, cause like anybody, anybody could give you macros and help you lose weight. Right. But right. Right. Watching you develop such a healthy relationship with food to watch you go from having to avoid nut butters, like the plague to being able to enjoy a food that you love in moderation and have control over yourself and, and wrestle with these deeper thoughts of like, what's next. And that is the most, oh my God, like the most euphoric, rewarding feeling in the entire world. Like I I can't even explain it to you. Like every time like I talk to somebody about one of my clients that I've like, I've been with long enough to watch them develop a healthy relationship with food and like a better understanding of their bodies. Oh man, that's when the Christmas trees light up. Like I have clients mm. help them lose twenty pounds, but to like what like when when I start getting into like you and I have other other clients, females and males, that like I've watched them develop these healthy relationships with food and and better positive body image and all those things that I try to help people with. Just like that's the icing on the cake for me. That's that's where like that's where my dreams become a reality with what I do as a profession. That's awesome. That's and and my, I have a. So I want to know what I want to get inside your head a little bit because okay. I remember one one of our first discussions 
was about you saying what your goals for me were. And one of your goals was for me to see food as fuel and not fun. You know, not to see food as the, the only source of entertainment in my life, but to see food as something that fuels my body. And I remember laughing at you and telling you, okay, that sounds great, but that's never going to happen. Uh, how do you, how do you as a coach, like what happens inside your head when you're dealing with a client who reacts that way to something or doesn't have that belief in themselves yet? That's a great, that is a great question. So I think the first step really is embracing them as they are. Like if like, you know, if you, when you said that to me, I could have easily just gone, well, then we can't work together. If you're not willing to, to, to try and challenge yourself to convert to my line of thinking and my way of coaching, then we can't coach together. Like you don't qualify. Right. But that's mm -hmm. to me, that is not good coaching. Like I embrace you where you were at. And so even if you didn't agree with me at the time, the best thing I could do in that moment, because if you don't agree with that, then you're obviously agreeing with the opposite of that. And that's not healthy. Right. And so being able to embrace you where you were at and just kind of like challenge you and help you like work things out in your head as we went and watch you develop that thought process and that view yourself was what, in my opinion, is the best way of handling things like that. So, you know, just embracing, embracing the client as they are, you know, and loving them where they're at. I think that makes, I think that makes a lot of sense. And what do your, what do you say to someone who hears us talking about that and says, I don't think I could ever get to that, that space myself. Like they, they're still in that fear that, that food is still going to remain, you know, the, the obsessive addictive point of their life forever. Like what do you, what are your, what's your initial thought with someone who comes at you and says, you know, just says, I just don't think this will ever change. What do you have to lose by trying? That's exactly what I would tell them. Like, if you're mm -hmm. stuck in that, if you're stuck in that thought process, that's fine. It's your choice. I, I want you to think on your terms. But answer me this question. If you are, if you believe that it will never change, then why is it going to hurt to try? Just try. Just, just put yourself in a structured place with somebody to hold you accountable and try to work on yourself and have that accountability and have that structure in there. Like if you, you know, you know what I mean? Like when people say, Oh, well, I would never do that. You know, I would never think that way. Well then, okay, well, then right. just do this with me. You know, if you're so stuck on it, then what do you have to worry about? You know? And so I would say like, what do you have, what do you have to lose in trying? I think that's a great question. I think that's, a, that's a great way to frame it back at that person and give them a question that then they need to answer. You know, like, and, and I think sometimes when you, if, when you think about a question like that and you know there isn't a really good answer, you know your answer is just an excuse, then it's easier to do something or try something new. Um, one, one of the other things I'm curious about as a coach, you know, for you as a coach is like, I know I came to you, I think when I started with you, I was 293 pounds. At that point, I was saying I wanted to be 210 pounds, but now we know my goal is a little bit different, a little bit lower than that. Um but I also know that you deal with clients that might have two or 300 pounds to lose or 15, 20 pounds to lose, or, you know, kind of are in a different place. Do you have a different approach when you're dealing with someone who has a much longer journey ahead of them, or is it still the same process for you? That's a great question. So yes and no, that's a, a yes and no answer because no, in terms of same process, 
in terms of like macros, goals, uh, how long we cut before we reverse diet and then cut again. All of that is very unique and individualized for each client, right? Like no one is the exact same whatsoever. Whereas the methodology is very much the same. Like I'm a, I coach the way that I coach. Okay. And like mm-hmm. that doesn't change. Now the way that that, um, evolves and, um, is made like as a, as a, the visual representation of that client to client is very different. Um, but the thing is, is that like, okay, so I'm a big believer. Like I, I like having long-term goals. I think everybody should have long-term goals, but I'm very big on looking at your goal as a painting. Okay. So it's, you have a vision in your head of what the painting should look like. But the thing is, is that if you just try to paint the painting, it's not going to look right. However, if you take your time and you focus on the, sp- the, the next paint stroke of the brush that's in your hand at that moment, every stroke builds upon making this painting come to life, right? Like you don't just like throw a bucket of paint on the canvas and the magic happens. It, every stroke matters. Every stroke matters. You know, it took, mm. I, I forget how long it took Da Vinci to paint Mona Lisa, but it was like seven years or something like that. Like, Every stroke matters. And I think that so many people have a long-term goal and, but they're so like focused on that goal that they don't think about the day to day. They don't work on themselves day to day. And so like for right. you, you know, your first goal was 210 and I love that. I was for it. I was like, let's do it. But at, but I didn't like think like, it's not like I'm, I was going to say something like, Oh, well, I, were, I always knew we were going to get you under 200. I did it. I focused on you in the moment. I wasn't worried about your long-term mm-hmm. goal. I had complete confidence in my knowledge that we would get there at some point. I always focused on, okay, how can we encourage and help Mike today? How can we give him a daily goal today? How can we help him this week? How can we help him today? And then the next day and the next day. And then as time went on and as you evolved as a human being and as a person that was trying to change the way they viewed themselves in their relationship with food, your goals evolved. And so I went with you, you know, like, and at some point, you know, we got to a point where we were talking about your long-term goal again, you know, and you were in a better headspace. And I said, why don't we go for 199? And you were like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And you, and, but, then, but then I just gave you the idea and I let you make the mature decision on your own, whether you thought you were capable of getting there and you chose to go there. And so like, you know, go, go walking with you day by day and focusing on what's right in front of you. And what was mm-hmm. and me focusing on what was right in front of you, I think is the best way to approach it. And so it doesn't matter who I'm coaching. I have, we always have a long-term goal because you always want that vision. But right. my, the way I coach a client evolves day after day after day. I might coach you one way Monday and something crazy might happen during the week. And we might have a completely different relationship on Sunday. Like I had one client, great example. One client, we were talking like once a week, you know, and I thought they were doing good. And I got busy and we had some issues and we got on the phone and she w- and, and, and she and they were like, listen, like, I need you to drill me. I need you. You know, she opened up to me about what she needed. And I said, OK, mm-hmm. so right then focusing on today, right, my roles with her changed. And now we talk daily. We talk on the phone weekly, like and there's constant pressure from me to make sure that she hits her daily goals. And so. That's like an example of how it evolves day to day. Like it's not just like a one way ticket kind of thing. Nice. 
so what happens for you? Because you know, talking about clients with goals, and you know, you 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 very nicely, you know, blew blew some smoke up my skirt. Um, <laughs> talking about how how well I stick to my macros and everything. Uh, what happened? And like, not not even necessarily what your coaching response is, but what happens for you as a person when you get that email or you get that call from a client that says, "I screwed up. I cheated. I did X, Y, and Z." This is what happened. Like, what 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 happens for you then? A sense of, and this is me being just straight up real. Like, I'm not like trying to like butter yep. myself up. Like, compassion, straight up compassion. Mm-hmm. It was the first probably first emotion because I've been there. I've been there. I know what it's like to slip up. It's rough. It's r- you feel guilty. You feel ashamed. You feel like. You don't even know if you can get to your goal now. Like it, you can really hammer yourself about having a bad day. Completely. And so first is compassion. Like, you know, Hey, are you okay? Let's talk about this, you know? And mm-hmm. then, and then it's okay. Now, now motivation, now motivation and being realistic with that. So now it's okay. What did you do? Why did it happen? What can we do to keep it from happening? Okay. Now that we've got all that figured out, Let's leave yesterday where it was, which is behind you. And let's focus on what's in front of you because you can't control anything that's already happened. Mm-hmm. Completely. And I mean, that's, nice. that's how I approach it every time. That makes sense, man. That makes a lot of sense. I think that's a good, I think that's a good insight. Like that's one of those, those things I don't, I think people are afraid to tell a coach when something like that happens. You know, especially if it's someone that you you re- you're building this bond of respect with, and you have to go to them and say, "I've done something that's transgressing this relationship we've built." I, I think that's a that's a that's a good insight into that. Yeah, but I think I think so. What you just said, and not that I want to say like, "Oh, you're you shouldn't have said that," but no, I definitely, definitely. I think that's the issue is that when some because of the way some coaches are, whether they're mm-hmm. not. Whether they don't really show compassion. So like they might not be rude, but they don't really act like they care, right? Or whatever. Sure. There's this stigma that what you just said is true. That when somebody has a bad day, it transgresses the relationship between coach and client. And I absolutely think that's wrong, especially if you have a good coach. I think Mm -hmm. that not that messing up is okay, but I think if it's handled the way it should be, it actually helps build the client and coach because now... Now you're coming to me vulnerable with your issues, and I'm right. and and I and I pick, I'm helping pick you up, and we're building that bond and that trust. That if you have a bad day, whether that it doesn't have to have to be food. Like at that point, like if you're having an emotional bad day and you need someone to talk to, I'm here for you. You know, like and we can have that strong relationship, right? Like that's that's what I desire. And so I think the idea that if someone has a bad day, it makes the relationship. Um, transgress, I think that you have a bad coach and need to quit him because that should, that mm. should give him the opportunity to build with you. Right. I think that makes sense. I think that makes sense. So I, I, I want to get it. I want, I have some questions for you kind of about journeys for men specifically, but I, I have one other question I want to ask you about kind of coaching and that's what questions do you think a person should ask someone before they hire them as a coach? Mm-hmm. First of all, what are you going to do for me? And if there is nothing personal or cuss or if there is nothing that is like personal, then I wouldn't get coached by them. Like 
if if you ask them what do you do and they go customized meal plan and uh, a, you know a, a one one time a week phone consult or one email a week or a weekly weekly updates or monthly macro updates i i wouldn't do that that doesn't sound very customized that doesn't sound like they're very involved in your life i don't think it's worth it um so that would be my first question is like is it personal sure you know um the word customized for me could be a really red flag. Like I try to use like um, individualized. I try to use that word. I don't like using the word customized if I don't have to, because to me, that's just like a, it's a, it's a bad word to use in the fitness industry as a coach because everybody uses it and it's not really customized, you know, it's like a, mm. it's like a flare word. Um, Interesting. Yeah. And so is it personalized? Is it catered to you as an individual? I like to say that a lot too. Like I want to cater your meal plan to you as an individual. I want to cater your macro updates to you as an individual, right? Like, so is it really for you and only for you? Like, is it unique towards you? Um, and then secondly, I don't know, like ask them questions about their diet history. Be willing to dig into them. Like if a coach, if a coach is not willing to answer your questions that are like detailed, like, then they, you don't, you don't need to let them coach you. Like you mm. should be able to ask them who they are, what's their, what's their coaching experience. And they should be able to reply with honest answers. Um, like if you're on Instagram and you ask a guy, Hey, do you coach? And like, and you get like a response within five seconds and it's like this paragraph about who I am. Don't sign up for their coaching. Like that's, that's, mm. that's a big no, no for me. Um, and so making sure that, that things are personalized for you and making sure that they're authentic um, and that they're involved. I think those are three big things for me, personalized for you and that the coach is authentic and involved. I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, that's a good, that's a good perspective. That's, and those are things that I definitely looked for when I was reaching out to coaches. Like, I think those are good. You know, you, it's very easy to tell if someone is being real with you or not when they're talking about what they're going to be doing for you. I, I think that's, you know, how how willing they are to kind of talk about that, I think, is, is very, 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 very telling. I'm losing my ability to speak, apparently. Um, I did want to talk about I, I just to see if you have any thoughts, um, because this is the Fat Guy Forum. I do want this, you know, our every every episode to it. To, and we obviously you you live life, whether you called yourself a fat guy or not, you live life as a fat guy. Um when you're thinking about men that are approaching a weight loss journey, because I know a lot of the guys that are listening are, you know, I, 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 the intention of the podcast isn't to always be about diet, but I do think that there are a lot of men listening that are thinking about, you know, approaching a weight loss journey. Like what do you think are the big obstacles or the big, maybe ex even using like the excuses you see as to why men struggle when they try to start a weight loss journey? I think the biggest struggle and the biggest and, and, and the number one thing that you need to do is take the first step and that sounds very mm -hmm. simplistic but it's powerful so many people have they can they can build a plan they can get a support group they can find a friend who has knowledge but they never take that first step and so nothing ever mm. happens right I, so i would much rather someone go you know what I don't know what I'm doing. I don't have a plan yet, but I'm doing this and we're going to start today. Right. And like taking that first step, because I promise you like momentum is a beautiful thing and it can be a bad thing. 
But when it comes to weight loss journeys, it's a beautiful thing. And once you take that first step, the next step gets easier and the next step gets easier. And you know what? And you can learn along the way. It's, it's okay to mess up. It's okay to make mistakes. Like, don't mm. worry about like failing. Don't worry about like having a bad day. Don't worry about those things. If you worry about those things, if you were, if you have fear of losing, you'll never win. Okay. I'll say that again. If you have fear of losing, you will never win. Winners focus on winning. They have vision, right? And even if they slip up, they learn. They don't lose to it. They don't submit to it. So, like, don't, don't let your fear of, like, messing up or not being able to do it, don't let that stop you. Like, like, be willing to get uncomfortable. Um, mm. And also, don't try to do it alone. And, you know, and like take that first step, but like find a support group. That's huge. Like it's huge to find people and not just people that'll listen to you whine about your daily life. Like, and I don't right. mean to say whine in a mean way, but like, you know, just to hear you like sulk and pity party about how terrible your diet is. Like find people that are going to challenge you, that are going to push you to be better, that are going to um, have serious talks with you, but have fun talks with you. Like people that you can actually build a relationship with. Um, mm. So Finding support is key. So taking the first step, finding support, uh, focus on winning, like focus on winning every day. Don't focus on losing. Don't have a fear of losing. It's much easier said than done, but it's powerful to be able to wake up every day and try to develop more and more a winner's mentality of I'm not going to mm. lose. I'm going to learn and then I'm going to move forward. Um, so, yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. I think it's, that's a great way to put it. And that kind of hits on that point of like, what do people need to do? They need to get started. And I, I think I hit on that in, in the episode where I talked about how to approach a massive weight loss journey. Like getting started is the biggest thing. Like it doesn't mean that you have to have this plan in place that's going to exactly get you to where you need to be. I mean, I look at my own journey. Like when I started keto, I don't keto now the same way I, I, I did keto two and a half years ago. You know, you allow that journey to evolve, but you have to get moving. You have to get things started or you're never going to get things going. Agree. So I, I think that that's, a, that's some great advice. That's some great advice. Yeah. I, I so John, we, huh? we have been talking for over an hour now, so I don't want to take up your entire night, but I, I've really appreciated this time with you. And I want to give you a chance. If there's anything you feel like we started to talk about, you didn't get to get, get into deeper or. Anything you want to be able to share with the people that are out there listening to the Fat Guy Forum? Yeah, nothing that we didn't get into, but if there's like anything I could leave the listener with, um, it's this. Understand that you have worth. You have value. Whether you're a man or a woman, a big man or a small man, a big woman or a small woman, you have worth. You have value. Your body is capable of much. It deserves to be healthy, not just physically, but mentally and emotionally and understanding who you are and what your body is capable of and the power that you have and the worth that you have. So find that, fight for that. Um, do everything you can, scratch a nail for that um, and challenge yourself to know that you are worthy and that you can take these steps. You can do these things to make your life better for you. Um, 
Yeah. Great. I, I, I think that's been, I, there's nothing I can say after that. I really don't think there is. John, how do people find you if they want to talk to you? Yeah. So you can email me at the keto road at gmail.com, even though like nobody uses email these days. Um, you can find me on Instagram at the keto road. I, you can ask Mike, I'm on there more than any, I mean, that, that is my stage. Um, uh, you can find me on Twitter, the keto, uh, at keto road. I'm not on there very often. You can find me at Facebook, the keto road, and then YouTube, the keto road. So all things, the keto. So, so it sounds like then they know how to find you. So that's great. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate the time tonight. And I, I think people are going to get a lot of this talk. I appreciate your candor sharing your journey, but then also allowing us to get into where that journey has taken you. I really think you've, you've shown us how you can build on these, these experiences and these challenges and turn them into something that, that really can be special for other people. So thank you so much, man. I really appreciate it. No, man, I, it was a pleasure being on, brother. Anything I can do to help lift up your voice and, and, and just help others, I'm all for it, brother. Great. Well, thank you so much. And, and everyone out there, thank you all so much for listening to another episode of the Fat Guy Forum. I am Gourmet, your host. You can find me mostly on Instagram at Gourmet underscore goes underscore keto. That's at Gourmet Goes Keto on Instagram. I'm also at Gourmet Goes Keto, no underscores on Twitter. And you can also email the show if you have some ideas or you want to talk about what you heard tonight, thefatguyforum at gmail.com. So send us a note. And also, as always, come on to one of those platforms. Drop me a DM if you've got something you want to talk about or a story you want to share here on the podcast. Thanks so much, everybody. We'll be back with you real soon. And like I always say, remember to amaze yourself because you're amazing people. Thanks, y'all. <laughs>